You're listening to the teaching ministry of Harvest Fellowship Church in Boyertown, Pennsylvania. You can find out more about us on the web at www.harvestfellowshipchurch.org. We pray that through our teaching, we may present everyone mature in Christ. If you would stand for this morning's New Testament reading. This morning's reading is coming from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 50. Hear now the holy, inspired, inerrant, and all-sufficient word of God. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Lord, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. You may be seated. Isn't the word of God glorious? And it brings such grand hope to all of us who believe. Let's pray as we open it up this morning. Oh, Lord, gracious God, we ask that you would enlighten our eyes, that we might know, that we might know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and the immeasurable greatness of your power towards us who believed, that same power by which you raised Christ from the dead and seated him at your right hand in heavenly places. O Lord God, let your word go forth with power and let those who trust in you rejoice in the hope of resurrection this morning. We ask that in Christ's holy name. Amen. Friends, we'll begin in the Old Testament this morning, actually in the 37th chapter of his prophecy 
Ezekiel, the prophet, describes a supernatural experience that is more spectacular, that is more captivating than anything that Hollywood has ever produced. The opening scene is quite alarming, and the special effects are truly fantastic. In verse 1, the prophet writes these words. He says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. Although the physical body of Ezekiel remained in the same place, in his vision, he was carried away in the spirit, and he was deposited right in the middle of a mass grave, a mass grave. Everywhere that he looked, he was surrounded by pile after pile after pile of dead and dried bones. In verse 2, God led Ezekiel on a tour of what we might call Death Valley. As he stepped carefully around the bones, Ezekiel described this gruesome sight with these words. He said, Behold, there were very many, very many bones, that is, on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. Now these, these were not the bones of recently deceased decomposing bodies. This was a massive field of destruction covered with dried, dismembered skeletons that must have been rotting there for years. And God asked Ezekiel a very strange question. He said to him, Son of man, can these bones live? Now, to the natural mind, there was really only one answer that he could give. No way, Lord. There's no way that these dry, dead bones could possibly be resuscitated. It's beyond imagination. But Ezekiel knew better. He knew better than to answer the omniscient creator in the mere wisdom of man. So he said something that was very wise. He said, oh, Lord, you know. You know, I don't know, but you know, Lord. And God commanded Ezekiel to prophesy, to speak forth the word of God. So he did. And all of a sudden, out of seemingly out of nowhere, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews, that is, on those bones and flesh and muscle came upon those bones and skin skin then covered the muscle that was attached to the bones Ezekiel prophesied yet again and breath breath filled these newly resurrected bodies and they stood on their feet and they became an exceeding great army While this miraculous vision would fill the exiles of Israel with a blessed hope of national restoration, Ezekiel's vision has a much wider application 
that is truly encouraging for all of us who believe this morning. The same God, the same God who raised these dry bones to life would destroy death and bring life and immortality to light through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, with this graphic image of Ezekiel's valley of dry bones in the front of our minds, listen to the words that were spoken by the Lord Jesus in John chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. Jesus said this. He says, As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. As we saw in Ezekiel 37, the power and the prerogative to raise the dead belongs to God alone. And in verse 24, Jesus revealed the means, yes, the means by which God powerfully imparts new life to those who are dead in sin and transgression. Jesus said this, He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life, just like the dry bones. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Put those images and the words of Christ together. As it was with Ezekiel, so it is with you and so it is with me. The means by which God resurrects the dead is his powerful word. As we obediently go into all the world, as we proclaim the gospel to all creatures, God regenerates men and women of his own choosing who are dead in transgressions and sins, and he powerfully raises them together with Christ so that now they are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2 and verse 6. Well, it makes sense then, as Paul writes the greatest exposition in all of the Bible on the doctrine of resurrection, that he should begin with a clear affirmation of the gospel, the word of God that is spoken, that word that raises the dead in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in verse 1. He wrote this. He said, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then in verses 5 through 11, Paul provided undeniable, compelling evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, he was seen alive by more than 500 eyewitnesses, many of whom, Paul says, are still alive at the time of his writing. And then, and then for the sake of those individuals whose minds have become confused, whose minds have become clouded by the secular philosophy of the day, 
Paul exposed the tragic implications of denying the doctrine of bodily resurrection. Remember in verse 16, Paul said, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still, you are still in your sins. My friends, if Jesus did not bear our sin, if Jesus did not carry our infirmity, if he was not pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquity, then we, then we must bear the penalty of our own sins for all of eternity. If Christ is not, was not forsaken on the cross, then we will be forsaken and cast wholly into the outer darkness of God's wrath. But the good news, Paul tells us in verse 20, in fact, Christ has, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, which took place on the Jewish feast of first fruits, serves to guarantee that all those who are joined to him by faith will be resurrected on that great and final day. Paul affirms this in his letter to the Romans. In chapter 6, he said, Do you not know that all of us, Yes, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, were joined to him in his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Beloved, the testimony of Holy Scripture, both the Old and the New Testament, consistently affirm with absolute certainty the bodily resurrection of those who have been justified by the grace of God through faith in God's unchanging word. It is the word that is spoken that brings life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25 to 44, Paul proved that the bodily resurrection of the saints is reasonable. He pointed to the resurrection power of God that is seen every year. In creation, every time that a seed is buried in the soil, every time that that seed makes its way through the soil, this, this small little stalk that comes from that seed where the outer lining of that seed has decayed, every time that reaches up toward the sun, there is a divine testimony to the resurrection of the saints. And in verse 45 to 49, Paul affirms the certainty of the resurrection when he said, if there is a natural body, 
there is a spiritual body. And just as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, that is Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, who is Christ. And so, my friends, we understand the bodily resurrection of the saints is reasonable. The bodily resurrection of the saints is certain. And now as Paul closes the chapter, he will tell us that the bodily resurrection of the saints is necessary. It is reasonable. It is certain. And it is necessary. In order to make his people fit for the kingdom and to display God's ultimate victory over death, there must be a resurrection from the dead. Let's make those two things our outline for this morning. First, the majestic power of God that is displayed in the resurrection, number one, transforms the saints. It prepares them for the kingdom. And number two, it declares God's ultimate victory over death. We'll cover these verses in those two points. Well, having expressed with absolute certainty the bodily resurrection of the saints, Paul now tells us why that resurrection is necessary. And beginning in verse 50, he says, I tell you this, brothers, <clears throat> flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. From this verse, we understand it is impossible it is impossible for mortal men and women who by their very makeup are perishable to inherit that which is immortal and imperishable. The body in its present form is not suited to dwell eternally in the glorious presence of Almighty God. Therefore, it must, it must be transformed. Now think about it this way. Here's an image for you. When we send astronauts into outer space, it is essential that they are clothed in suits that are or housed in vehicles that reproduce the same exact atmosphere that is here on the Earth. If they didn't do that, what would happen to those astronauts? Well, they would perish. They would perish quickly if they weren't dressed or housed in suits that contain the, the atmosphere of earth. Well, that doesn't mean that God will abandon our bodies altogether. As it is in the resurrection, God must provide a believer with a glorified body that is suited for the atmosphere in heaven. You see, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, he saved the whole person. We often say, well, he saved my soul. Yes, he did. But he saved the whole person, body and soul, the whole of you, all of you. And who you are has been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. When Paul said flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, he was referring to God's eternal kingdom. 
And we hear that kingdom being established by an announcement that takes place in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15. When the seventh angel blows his trumpet and loud voices in heaven make this proclamation, they say the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. At the coming of Christ, the powers of darkness will be defeated. The dead will be raised, imperishable. The earth will be renewed. The kingdom will be established, and the saints will receive their glorious inheritance. Now, friends, because Paul knew, because he knew the Old Testament inside and out, as he reflected on the inheritance of the saints, he would have remembered how Israel took possession of the inheritance that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, with a strong arm, God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them through the waters of the Red Sea. He destroyed Pharaoh and his armies before their very eyes. For 40 years, he sustained the believing remnant of Israel in the wilderness. And then he called Joshua to lead them into the the land that he gave to them as an eternal inheritance. And now, in his final address to God's chosen people, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Joshua highlighted the grace of God that provided them with such a rich inheritance. Joshua is speaking to the people of Israel as he's taking them into the promised land. As the lands have been conquered, he said, them, he said this to them, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities and you had not, that you had not built and you dwelt in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Speaking to these people, he was telling them of the grace of God how God wonderfully brought them in and gave them as an inheritance all of this land, homes that they didn't build, fields that they didn't plant, fruit that they didn't pick. It's all theirs. So the promised land served as a shadow of the glorious inheritance that God has laid up for those who believe. By the grace of God in the resurrection, we will dwell in that city whose builder and architect is God, and we will enjoy an abundant provision of God by his grace forever and forever. The apostle Peter described the inheritance of the saints in his first epistle when he wrote this, Blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Friends, as we await the glory of that final day, God has given us his Holy Spirit as the first installment of that imperishable inheritance that is ours forever. In Ephesians chapter 1, beginning of verse 13, Paul said, In him, that is, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now this indwelling Holy Spirit who came to dwell among us and in us when we were born of God, he is the down payment. He is the surety that guarantees the full future provision of God's eternal inheritance. Just like when you go out and you go shopping. We used to do this. We used to lay away things for our kids for Christmas. Here is the money that is promising that I will come back and get this item for my kids. As sure as I gave you that down payment, I will be back. And I will pay, I will give, I will pick this item up for my children. Well, so it is the indwelling Holy Spirit is the down payment that we will take uh, all of the provision that God has given us in that inheritance. And because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, it is imperative that this physical seed, this mortal body that is planted in the ground must undergo some kind of radical transformation, a dramatic change that will enable us to live in the presence of God forever. In verse 51 to 53, Paul unravels this mystery, the mystery of this transformation for us. When he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Throughout the New Testament, this word mystery describes the revelation, the revelation of a divine reality that was previously concealed, a truth that was hidden in the Old Testament but is now revealed in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul said that the gospel was hidden in times past but has now been revealed to the apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Well, here in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul uncovers the mystery of the resurrection. On the day of the Lord, God will powerfully and simultaneously resurrect the dry bones of believers who were long gone. And at the same time, he will transform the body of those who are still alive and remain at the coming of the Lord in a flash. At the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the bodies of all believers will be changed. In verse 52, we read, In a moment, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. Now this word, moment, in a moment, this word refers to the smallest possible particle. The Greek word is atomos, from which we get an atom. An atom, which at one point we thought could never be cut, could never be divided. Something that cannot be cut in a flash, in the twinkling or in the blink of an eye. At the last trumpet, God will resurrect the bodies of his chosen people and bring them safely to himself. In Exodus chapter 19, it was with a blast of a trumpet that God gathered the people of Israel to meet with him on Mount Sinai. And in Isaiah 27, it was with the blast of a trumpet 
that the dispersed remnant of Israel was called back into the promised land. And so it is that with the blast of a trumpet, God will call his beloved people. He will call them from the four corners of the earth. He will call them to himself, and he will resurrect them on that great and final day. We see this described by the Lord Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24 and verse 30, where he says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of, the, of heaven to the other. And we see this again in Paul's writing, his epistle to the Thessalonians, his first epistle, where he writes for the Lord himself. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, we who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. The earthly corruption of these physical bodies will be changed instantaneously. Regardless of their condition, whether they've been in the ground for a thousand years or whether they are still walking on the earth when Jesus returns, they will be changed. They will be transformed. They will become like Christ's resurrection body. And how our hearts long for that day. Now, let's remember our outline. First, God will transform the saints. He will make them fit for the kingdom. We've heard about that transformation. Secondly, it will bring about God's ultimate victory over death. And that's where Paul goes, beginning in verse 53, when he says, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. The transformation of the saints in the resurrection is described in common terms, in common terms that we would use for taking off an old worn-out piece of clothing and putting on some new glorious robe that we receive. Let's say we receive it for Christmas. We take off that old robe with holes and and frayed edges, and we put on this new glorious garment that we have received from God. So it is that the new body will be new, glorious. It'll be able to dwell in the presence of God forever. It will be imperishable. It will be eternal From the fall of Adam in the garden, death has swallowed up all of mankind. From the entrance of death in chapter 3, we go to chapter 5 in Genesis. And in chapter 5, we read of so-and-so who was born, so-and-so who gave birth to a son, so-and-so who died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Repeatedly, all throughout, we we see the word of God come true that the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. 
And then every generation along the way, there is death, but for one. There is one who walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. This Enoch is an image of those who will be here on the final day, who will be walking with God, and he will take them to himself. So it is that whether we are buried or whether we are walking with God in that final day, we will be changed. Paul told Timothy that by means of his glorious resurrection, Jesus Christ abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so it is in Revelation chapter 1 when we see that glorious image of the risen Christ. We see him in all of his glory. When he is revealed to John, he said this. He said, fear not, for I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This same Jesus, who is called the living one, came into a world that was under the curse of sin and death. He lived a perfect life, a sinless life, and then he offered himself on the cross in the place of all who would believe. It is through his substitutionary sacrificial death, it is through his glorious resurrection that he destroyed death forever. As the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 25 and verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. The same death that swallowed up all of mankind, Christ will swallow up in this grand resurrection. Death itself will be swallowed up forever. And the Lord will wipe away every tear from all faces and the reproach of his people. And he will take away from all of the earth Uh, For the Lord has spoken at the second coming of Jesus Christ. All those who have been redeemed will cast off death like a worn-out garment and put on the new garment, that immortal, eternal resurrection body that is like the resurrected body of Christ. Now, in light of this great victory, when we come to verse 55, it seems as if Paul is taunting, Paul is is mocking death in a bold and confident expression when he says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Here Paul refers to the prophecy of Hosea. You'll find these similar words in Hosea chapter 13, which speak of the plague. It speaks of a plague of eternal suffering that comes alongside of death. As if death itself was not bad enough, at the end of man's life, death opens up a door to a whole new world of pain and outer darkness that is reserved for those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. But for those who believe, not only has Christ destroyed death, but he also removed the penalty of sin the fiery wrath of God that Paul likens to the burning sting of a scorpion's tail. When he says this, the sting of death is sin. Think of that sting, that sting of a scorpion, that sting of a bee, 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, death is made more painful by the venom, by the venom of sin. And the venom of sin receives its potency from the law of God. Paul told the Romans in chapter 4 and verse 15, the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. If there was no speed limit, well, then I could drive as fast as I want to drive. But there is a speed limit. So if I drive as fast as I want to drive, there will be a fine. I will be prosecuted for speeding. The Lord said, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. But when I'm growing up, well, I was a rebel. I was a rebel. So I stand before God condemned. My friends, the law of God is a measuring stick. It can't save us. All it can do is condemn us. All it can do is show us that we don't measure up. Here is God's perfect standard. We can look at Jesus Christ as the perfect standard of all true righteousness. And when we hold that standard up, none of us, not a one of us, measures up to the perfect standard of righteousness that is described for us in the law of God. But Paul says, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Jesus Christ lived that perfect life. He obeyed the law of God in perfection. He obeyed that law in word. He obeyed that law in deed. He obeyed that law even in thought. And now, by faith, by faith in Christ, in his perfect life, his atoning death, his glorious resurrection, then we who believe are credited with Christ's perfect righteousness. In his second letter to the Corinthians, the apostle Paul said, for our sake, he... God the Father made him, Christ the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When God opens our eyes to see our sinful condition and we look to Christ and his sacrifice as the full and complete payment for our sins, then our faith is credited as righteousness and we are washed from the filth of our iniquity. And we are justified in the sight of God. Once again, the prophet Isaiah said, He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all of the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Sin brings a reproach upon any people. The tears that we shed are tears of remorse for our own sinful condition. And God, in his glory, God in his mercy, God in his grace, will swallow up death forever through the final resurrection. In verse 9, he said, and it will be said, 
on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Like Isaiah, we too are waiting for that great and final day when this perishable body will put on the imperishable. This mortal will put on immortality. Until that time, then we ask, how shall we live? How shall we live as we await that day when death is swallowed up in victory? Well, in verse 58, Paul moves on from doctrine to application. And he writes these words, therefore, therefore, in light of everything that I have said, in light of all of this good news of the resurrection from the dead, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In light of Christ's victory over sin and death, Paul commands us to stand firm, Stand firm and to persevere in the faith. We must remain steadfast. Our feet must be, must be stationed on the solid rock of Christ. And don't be deceived by the corrupt philosophies of men who say that there is no resurrection. Instead, we must flourish. We must thrive. We must abound in the work of the Lord. So then we have to ask, what is the work of the Lord? Well, I am reminded that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to seek and save the lost out of love for him, out of love for his beloved people. We are called to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth and to continue to proclaim the gospel, wherein then God continues to seek and save the lost. We are like Ezekiel. We are simply called to proclaim the word of God. And the majesty of God's work, the glory of his regenerating power, the wonder of the resurrection is the power of God. We are simply those who make the proclamation. Jesus Christ, the eternal second person of the Trinity, left his home in glory. He put on flesh, and he came to dwell among us. He lived a perfect, sinless life, and he died a sinner's death so that by faith in his sacrifice, we who are sinful might be declared righteous. We who are mortal might receive a glorified body so that we can then dwell in the presence of God forever. My friends, this is the simple gospel that we are called to go and proclaim. If you believe God's word, your old, dirty, dry bones will be raised to new life by the power of God on that great and final day. Let us pray. Father, we look to you. We look to you. Lord, this is your word. 
you have opened our eyes and given us hope of that great and final day when we, if we are dead, will be raised. And if we are alive, we will be transformed. All of this, O Lord, is by your grace. So we give you praise. We give you thanks. We rejoice in your word. We cling to your promise. We lay ourselves before you this morning as an offering of praise. For you, O Lord, are the giver of life. You are the one who raises the dead. We give you praise. We give you thanks in Christ's holy name. Amen.